Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes is James Ellis Ford to talk about how he wrote, recorded, and produced the album The Hum. James Ellis Ford is a producer, composer, and songwriter from Staffordshire, England. A multi-instrumentalist from a young age, James grew up learning piano, flute, guitar, and bass, and would often perform in local bands. While studying at Manchester University, James joined Jazz Shaw, Alex McNaughton, and Simon Lord to play drums as part of the psychedelic pop project Simeon. After releasing two studio albums to great acclaim, the band disbanded, but James and Jazz continued their partnership as Simeon Mobile Disco, an electronic-focused spin-off, going on to release a further six studio albums. The Justice remix of the Simeon song, Never Be Alone, continued the Simeon story. Rechristened We Are Your Friends and credited to Justice vs. Simeon, it reached the top 20 in the UK singles charts and was featured among NME's best tracks of the past 15 years. Having always been at the helm when recording his various bands, from 2005, James began to focus more on the production side of music. Working on records with indie rock bands including Jewels and Mystery Jets, in 2007, he co-produced Arctic Monkey's second album, Favourite Worst Nightmare, alongside Mike Crossy. The record reached number one on the UK album charts and was nominated for that year's Mercury Prize. James has since produced or co-produced each of Arctic Monkey's subsequent records, four of which have certified platinum. He has gone on to produce and write on albums from a variety of artists, including multiple hit records from Gorillaz, Depeche Mode, Foles, Kylie Minogue, and Florence and the Machine. James's debut solo album, The Hum, sees him take center stage for the first time and is written, performed, and produced entirely by James from his home studio. And today, I'm here at James's studio in Clapton, Northeast London, and what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record? This is Caterpillar. Caterpillar by James Ellis Ford from the album The Hum. And I'm very pleased to say that sat with me is James Ellis Ford. Hello, James. Hi. Thank you for letting us come into your studio, Studio 53, into your world, your inner sanctum. Um, it's very exciting. And I know that you've been on our list of people to get on tape notes for a long, long time because you've worked with so many amazing artists from Arctic Monkeys to Florence to Depeche Mode. But now you've got a solo album out and you've been very cleverly not in the spotlight or drawing any attention to yourself, but but unfortunately, you're kind of basking in it now. Yeah, I'm starting to realise I maybe made a mistake. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've always enjoyed kind of doing things behind the scenes and then I've made my own record and now I've got to talk about it. 
Well, it's great from our perspective, and the album's great as well. And so it's going to be really exciting to, to delve into it. So, I mean, we are surrounded by equipment, all sorts of amazing equipment, including a drum kit. You started on drums? The full part of the history was actually I started on piano and flute when I was a little kid and kind of resented those and hated them. But in retrospect, it was a good thing. And then I ended up buying my dad's guitar off him as a Christmas present when I was about 12 to teach me the value of money and um, <laughs> learning guitar a little bit myself. And then he got one of his friends to give me guitar lessons. And then I was just playing in like pub rock bands in my little town called Leek from sort of the age of 12 playing like boys are back in town and that kind of stuff. I ended up migrating to bass and then I was always interested in the drums but it was just in like rehearsal rooms when the drummer went out for a fag or whatever I'd just get on the drums for a bit and I had a really good music teacher who also used to let me play the drums in you know in in lunchtime to get out of playing rugby or whatever. Yeah and then when I got to college I answered a um, an advert in Manchester University, you know, for a drummer, and I'd never really been a drummer in a band, but I pretended I was, and met Jas and Alex, and we started Simeon, basically. Right, wow. Yeah. And that started the whole ball started rolling. Started the whole thing, yeah, and then we got signed, coming out of university, uh, we made an album in our basement, basically, but I was the one, like, pushing the buttons mainly, I suppose. And we moved to London, did the classic thing living together and touring fell out and uh it kind of split quite acrimoniously and everyone went off to get jobs and stuff and i was like i could either go and get a job or i could keep on the studio and try and become a producer because i would always had it in my head that i wanted to be a producer and yeah just you know produce some friends bands or whatever and one thing led to another yeah and here we are amazing so how did the hum come about then? You know, if you're cleverly putting yourself in the background, you couldn't resist making your own tunes? Yeah, I don't know if it's I couldn't resist. It was more that, you know, I always make music for myself as I go through, you know, also just, you know, plugging in stuff and figuring out if things are working, you know, and just um, I've got mountains of little sketches on the computer. And it, I often got that itch scratched by doing the SMD stuff with Jazz, but, you know, Jazz... He's going through some kind of health issues at the minute, which meant, especially through COVID, he wasn't wasn't able to be in a room with him. So I had a bit of extra free time. And I, yeah, I just thought, what's it going to be like if I just... Also, I think the other main thing is having this studio here, which I've only had for like, from just before COVID, really. You know, I just had the time and the opportunity to finish off some of the sketches I had. And I think I just wanted to see what would happen if I didn't, you know, work with anyone else and just do everything myself, print style, and yeah. <laughs> see what would come out, you know, just, and also just, I, I felt like it was just an interesting thing, a challenge for myself to, to push myself to kind of listen to some of my own bits of advice that I happily dish out to other people. And it's really hard. <laughs> it's really difficult. <laughs> I found it, especially, you know, I, I kind of toyed with the idea of getting some singers and sending some things out. So I sort of started writing some melodies and lyrics and stuff. And then I thought I could just sing it if I, you know, had the balls to do it. And it was tough to kind of, and it's still tough really for me to kind of get my head around that aspect of it, you know, and, but I, you know, the, the actual 
bit of that, you know, the lyric writing and the, you know, forcing myself to sing and all of that sort of stuff actually ended up being my favorite bit of the process and I got really into it. Yeah, and then here we are. I kind of did the bit, like, the bit that I wanted to do really was just seeing if I could do it and seeing where it would lead me. And then I played it to a few friends and obviously management and stuff. And that was, I was happy with that. That was all I kind of wanted it to be. But then some people want to put it out and then it's like, before you know it, it's like, oh, are you going to do a live show? Are you going to do some press? You know, what's the artwork going to be? you got to have photos. It's like, oh, shit. <laughs> I just kind of hadn't thought it through. So here I am. Well, and it's interesting because in a way you were looking to challenge yourself, you know, in mm. your own comfortable mm. studio environment, yeah, but right. challenge yourself in a way creatively by saying, oh, well, you've got to sing these. You've got to write words for these. Mm. So, uh, and kind of flipping things around. So going from the role of the producer where you're coaxing and cajoling and kind of nurturing people into their best performance. Yeah. Then you tried to apply some of that to yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, I always like a big thing in this sort of studio is trying to get people to lean into their vulnerabilities and, you know, kind of do that bit of it. And it's easy to say it's much harder to do, you know, and to do it on your own. And, you know, singing, it, it makes you feel really vulnerable or just putting anything out there. It does, you know, it's... Uh, so in a way, I think it is going to help my production as well because it's given me an insight into actually how hard the things I'm pushing people to do, you know, how, how hard those things are on a regular basis, you know. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I'm, I must say that listening to the album and listening to the songs on which you do sing, it doesn't sound as if you're tentatively <laughs> trying out the singing lark. It sounds like you know what you're doing and, and it sounds fantastic. And that Thank seems you. like a good way to start listening to some of that now. So we'll get a little taste of the first song that we're going to look at, which is I Never Wanted Anything. So we're going to hear the fully realised version and then dig into its creation. Here we go. That is I Never Wanted Anything, our first taste of, of James Ellis Ford, the singer, sounding fantastic. So, I mean, in terms of approaching these songs, I mean, if they started out as experiments, did you set yourself any parameters about what you were going to do, how you were going to approach it? No, like I, you know, often the role of a producer is to define those parameters. But, you know, as the older I get and the more I do, the more I kind of feel like, you limit yourself with rules a lot of the time and like, oh, it's going to sound like this. You know, obviously I wanted to make something that I felt reflected my music taste, which I think, you know, my default is always going back to kind of the sort of like Robert Wyatt's and, you know, Eno's and those kind of things. But 
Yeah, I just wanted to make something that I liked. And I suppose at the beginning, I just kind of cast the net pretty wide. A lot of them were from just, yeah, literally fucking around. And like this one started, it sort of started with this thing, which is actually this surge modular behind me. I think I've almost, um, I can't remember, I just had it changed or graded or something and I, I was like testing it and playing with it and just made a sequence, probably clocked it from the 808 like I normally do. And I just had this going and then I've got a drum kit over there and I just played along with it. So, so that loop would have just gone on and on. Yeah, that's all the little kind of variations of me just like, you know, fucking with it or whatever. Right. So I'm looking at this modular synth. Is, yeah. Is, it's got tons of different cables coming in and out of it in so, uh, blue and red and yellow. And then the 808 was connected to that as well. Yeah, I can show you if you like. So in here, I tend to clock everything from this uh, circle and sequencer here. And that sort of makes everything tick along and talk to each other and then basically you can take a a trigger from the 808 because you can program steps on this button and then that's sending a little clock into here which makes all this step around and this is like a one of the early kind of like Surge and Buchler were the kind of more esoteric west coast sort of uh, synthesizers that um, is sort of more designed for more kind of sound designy noise stuff rather than notes but you can still get notes out of it and yeah it basically kind of yeah so it's just it's kind of making this noise at the minute right so it it's pretty random you know you can you can structure it so it works within a tonality or you can just make it make loads of crazy noises but often it's quite good because you can come back to it from working on some other projects and in a new context, a uh, different tempo, it suddenly like gives you something for free and you just, I don't know. So like, I could easily just like start from that for a new tune, yeah. even though I didn't program that, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Which is probably what happened with this one. So, yeah. So then I think I would have just, I think I was just interested in the rhythm of it. And I, I think I was just trying to like play something, um, you know, a little sort of off the, that kind of moved off the rhythm a little bit. It was, wasn't a straight beat. Just, I think I was just playing around just to, you know, have some fun. Yeah. Because sometimes I just, I don't get that much opportunity to do it, but yes. play for yeah. fun as well. And then, uh, yeah, I probably would have, I think like with a lot of this record, it was literally first takes of everything. Because, Something I've been thinking about is that when it's other people's records and I'm focused on a kind of goal and I've heard the demos and I'm I'm trying to guide people in a direction so I'll make them do, you know, make them do more takes if I don't think it's good enough yet or, you know, if it's great instantly do that and move on. With myself, I'm, I'm much more lazy. Like I can't be asked to force myself to get it right. Like li when I opened the sessions last night, cause I knew you were coming in, listening back, it's like, well, there's loads of mistakes all over it. <laughs> but I think I intended to try and move through it as quickly as possible. 
Because as well, even, you know, when you're first doing it, you don't even know it's going to be anything, you know. Yeah. So it's just let, let's chase it as quickly as I can just to see if it's even a thing. And so, yeah, I would have just like gone around quickly, picked up the bass, played a bass line, first bass line for, you know, and done it like that. The, the lyrics were different, obviously. It yeah. took me longer. but So you established this, then you'd have had this track recorded and then played that and then put a bit of bass on top. Yeah. So Because there were no demos for these songs. There were no demos, no. Yeah. Like it's all literally sort of exploratory recording, if that makes sense. Mm. You know, and a lot. Of, you know, sometimes I would do it again if because I'm in here on my own. Like I, I record the drums through these preamps behind me. There's like Altex and kind of some Akai's down here. Some old like sort of fifties and sixties pre's because I just like the dirt that they give. But to that end, you can overcook them quite easily, and they can, depending on how hard you're playing or whatever you can do a whole take and then it's like, you know, the snare's totally blown out or whatever. So I have to do a few takes sometimes, just, you know, I'll record a bit and then go back and change the levels and yeah. do that a few times. So, yeah, so I would have done that. I think, obviously, there's some percussion stuff on here, but which I would have added afterwards. A tambourine, I'm a big fan of a tambourine. Probably every record I've ever made has got a tambourine on it. I need to stop putting tambourine on everything. But these are all played in live, they're not... Yeah, yeah, you know, I just probably busk a little bass line and then, like, it might have even been... I'm not even sure with this one. It might have been a loop, possibly. I think that little... Wow, 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 wow. That's, that would have been bass through, um, you know, like, I'm a big fan of the Mutron stuff, like Mutron or War. I think maybe that is, that's something that I maybe heard in the Surge thing. I think I maybe heard that little melody in there. I was trying to copy it on the bass. Right. And then I played the rest of the bass along with it. Yeah. So then I, and then I probably would have got bored and moved on at that point. Yeah. Because, the, I mean, the song itself does move on. There are different stages. Yeah. You know, and there's this fantastic solo as well. And in terms of evolving it into a song that was going to have someone, you singing on top of it and have words that you've thought about and written down. You know, at what point did you realise, actually, that's what I'm going to do with this? I don't know, really. I definitely was going to make an instrumental record first. So I would have had that and probably, like, the keys, maybe the this guitar solo thing. And then I think the big thing that was a new thing for me was this bass clarinet, which I had never played before. But... um I was always been a big fan of the sound. It just instantly reminds me of like Moon Dog or you know that kind of thing. I one of my uh, I've said it before on things I think, but when I first moved to Manchester, I started playing drums randomly with uh, this band called Eight Hundred Eight State. But I ended up like really bonding with Graham, who's sort of the main guy, and he just had incredible has incredible music taste and introduced me to you know like we were talking about Sun Ra earlier but you know Rashan Roland Kirk and mm. loads of weird exotica and just totally broadened my palette beyond anything and then I played in a couple of bands with him one called Toolshed where we like covered Moondog and, and uh, Sun Ra and a few things and there was like three drummers and a sort of Graham would play bass clarinet and 
you know, there was that kind of opera singer called C Ming who's just put a really nice record out and string players. It was like all over the place. There's another band called Home Life as well, which is also excellent, which has got the amazing Paddy Steer in it and he, he was playing bass, but he now does this amazing one man show. But I did had it was fun at the time, but it was definitely in retrospect a really formative bit yeah. for me in terms of my own musical taste and what and the sort of stuff I was so, into so, magma and yeah sort of that's shit. amazing and so this is when you're at university yeah, yeah yeah so we should just put some concept Graham Massey 808 State which yeah. crossed over and had top 10 hits and, and stuff like yeah. that but came out of the Hacienda era when it has gone full rave but exactly. Graham's background was he was around in the late 70s early 80s around the same time as New Order and Certain yeah, Ratio yeah. and was trying to create similar type bands, post-punk bands, yeah. so exploring all the Bang time. tongs and all that yes, stuff. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. So he had an incredible background and history, and you were able, mm. in a way, to tap into that. Yeah, he just he was just really generous in, you know, he would just sort of show me and give me records. Also, you know, as well in Manchester, it was around the time of the, like, Twisted Nerve stuff, so, like, it was Andy Votel and all those kind of great record diggers who, you know, were pulling weird psych records out and stuff. So there was a lot of that really interesting esoteric music around anyway my main point about that was that from that point i had this in my head that bass clarinet was amazing for some mm. reason and when it came around to this i was like oh fuck it i'm gonna go on ebay and buy a bass clarinet and see what happens and you know i'm not a great i don't know in the name of any great <laughs> bass clarinet player but um i can i can play it enough to get a a tune out of it, you yeah. know. Um, and it's an interesting instrument because it, it looks like a saxophone in a way. Yeah. But like you've taken a clarinet yeah. and got a, the bell of a sax and just kind of stuck them together. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And I just love the feel and the tone of it. And so going back to my thing, I was like, oh, I'm just going to do this like instrumental record and all the melodies will be on bass clarinet, which is where a lot of the uh, things were. But then I kind of I sort of did that. And like even on this tune, I probably got to the point like, these are bass clarinets here, I think. That was flute as well and right. bass clarinet together, but all through um, Mutron Phaser, which is behind me down here. So I just like, got into making these little melodic sections. But yeah, I don't know why I started, why I decided to sing. Um, once I got it to that point, I still felt like maybe there was another turn of the screw to be had. And I thought I'd try it out and, you know, maybe I was thinking I'd transcend it to someone to sing it on my behalf. But then in doing it, I kind of, you know, sort of found a certain types of melody that I thought suited me and stuff. I was like, well, you know, it's maybe a bit braver in, in a lot of respects than to, you know, go through your phone book or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so I'm still not sure if I regret the decision, but that's what happened. Yeah. So and then I started to sketch out some melodies and, you know, got into singing verse notes on my phone. I definitely, like, working with a lot of, like, really good lyricists in my past, I definitely noticed, you know, people like Alex or whatever are constantly switched on and observing, you know, around the dinner table, you can see him, like, writing stuff down that people <laughs> say or whatever, you know, and or little phrases that happen. I've, and I, I tend not to think like that. I'm very... I love chords and melody. That's my main thing. But I don't often think in lyrical terms. So I was like, I don't, you know, do I even want to write lyrics? But I know I must admit I did quite get into it when I started it. You know, your brain starts kind of ticking around in a different way, and you know, you sort of wake up in the middle of the night. Oh, I could say that thing, and that would that, you know, like, or you mm. 
go for a walk and like suddenly two bits fit together like a little jigsaw puzzle and it it's quite satisfying yeah no it sounds great i mean it's really interesting hearing about how it all feeds into the final result all these different experiences you know your encounters and your knowledge of different kinds of musicians and and their effect on you and realizing that that in turn could be something that you do yeah I, you know i i'm very happy i feel very fulfilled in my job in general like i get to make and play and add to people's music and i love people and collaborating i don't have this burning need to be a, a solo artist really if i'm honest but i did really enjoy making the record and you know i feel like i would like people to hear it mm. you know i'm also i don't think i'm going to do loads of touring or anything it's just not you know I, this bit you know the actual moment of creation and making something up and something turning from nothing into something is the bit that i chase every day and it makes me feel happy when when you get something you know and that's the bit i am constantly chasing i don't really want the other bit of it you know yeah like i, I i'm aware that it's a part of it that is necessary sometimes yeah and, I, and you've done many aspects of that you know be it with simian mobile disco yeah, be it yeah. as part of the last shadow puppets you know you've given it a good yeah. go uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah well yeah but similarly i suppose maybe you just um you get swept along by by things don't you when they happen but yeah if i'm honest my uh where i really want to be is is here right know? which yeah. is actually the what the song is about yeah well, i was going to say <laughs> i mean i never wanted anything yeah. the, the, the lyrics in a way are about that saying that yeah this is what i wanted you know and i've got this yeah i don't mean it to sound like smug either but it's like <laughs> it's um you know i remember quite clearly as a, like a 14 year old just been being in bands and looking back thankfully my you know my parents at the time sort of did give me enough space to just be able to make music and try out we had a cellar i had a drum kit in there i had a little tascam 4 track i had actually this synth that i bought off uh maxi korg yeah maxi korg which i bought for like 70 quid or something off a mate who didn't know what it was and wanted you know to buy fags and <laughs> I didn't know what it was either. Yeah. But um it looks cool though. Yeah, I honestly still think it's one of the best sounding synths. I use it almost every day. And you know, like a couple of crappy microphones and I was like at the time little pretentious kid trying to like recreate, you know, Herbie Hancock headhunters or something, you know what I mean, <laughs> wow. like some weird little kind of funk jams. How old were you by then? <laughs> From 15 like, or right. something this is. I wish I had the tapes of them, but I don't. <laughs> But I just remember being in that moment and thinking, this is the best thing ever. I just, you know, you can put things in and make a thing. And, you know, I just want to do as much of this as I can, you know. And I, from that moment, I had a quite clear sort of vision of what I wanted my life to be, you know. And I pretty much managed to stick to it, which is incredibly fortunate. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. I never wanted anything more than this and and you say you bought your dad's guitar off him for christmas yeah. um so were they serious musicians or was this something no my that... dad was just like in in local bands sort of playing bass just for a laugh really he wasn't i don't think he ever really wanted to be a musician or anything but he he's you know i still have a good relationship great relationship with my dad where we go to festivals and he'll be sending me bands i've never heard of have you heard this sort of unknown noise rock band you know and you know, he was always playing, you know, I grew up on like 
Caravan and Gentle Giant and a lot of those kind of like proggy, mm. proggy things. Um, he bought me Bleach, you know, by Nirvana because I was like listening to, yeah, fucking Herbie Hancock. And he was like, <laughs> Do you know, like kids your age normally listen to this kind of music. And I was like, so this is the John Coltrane just, I don't know, stroking my non-existent beard. Right. Amazing. And going back to the track, I never wanted anything. Is there anything more we should hear from it before we um, move on? Yeah, well, I suppose just does the rest of the elements. I said, yeah, you know, drums, bass, synth. What are the keys doing? I can't remember. Yeah, it's just clav, I think. I think, again, it was a fairly... It's the Hona clavinet, which is like classic funk sort of synth. But yeah. It's sort of like halfway between a keyboard and a guitar, and I just always sort of wanted one and actually got one just before making this record, so it's on everything. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, underneath here, there's a thing called a filicorda, which is like an old 60s. I remember seeing, there's a band called The Monks that right, um, yeah. did loads American of American like, GIs in yeah, Germany. Yeah, shaved yeah. the heads and made weird kind of garage rock. They always played a... A filicorder, so I've always kind of wanted one of them as well. And you know, this studio is pretty much a kind of my gear best ofs at this point. You know what I mean? It's sort of, uh, it's like, yeah, I can't really fit anything else in here, so it's sort of one in, one out at this stage. So right. Anything I, I buy has to be uh, something that I really want. Yeah. Which is a good thing. I, you know, stops me scrolling on eBay for no reason. <laughs> and yeah, the guitar solo thing. Yeah, again, it's sort of like, I think it's through an Ottawa. I've got some amps over there. Again, probably I was just playing along and that was a bit that stuck out. And so all Maybe recorded to your computer? Or yeah, or well, I've got an 8-track tape machine here. I've got it set up on the patch bay, so it normals through the tape machine. So I can just like hit record on the tape and it'll come off the repro head into the, into the computer. Right. Um, so you get a double... Yeah, like, recording. you know, tape for me, you know, I've got two tape machines over there. They're kind of set up, as you can see, they're kind of linked together. They're set up for like a Frippertronics type thing. So basically you record into one tape machine and it goes to the other one and then plays out of that one. So you get yeah. the delay of the length of the tape. So now that I look, I mean, I did notice all the different Revoxes, et cetera, that you've got in the room. But now that I look at them... I can see the tape running across. Yeah. And there's a gap of about two feet or, or something between. Yeah. Them. And so basically, then you feed the output of the one that's doing the playback back into the original one and you get these kind of loops and it, it feeds back and you can EQ the the send back into the first tape machine. And it's sort of like a, a really archaic delay pedal, but I'm a huge fan of all those, like, you know, those sort of Frippanino early Friptronics record, so I kind of looked into that sort of stuff. And yeah. Actually, there's a, quite a lot of that on this record, like loopy stuff, the whole beginning, the album starts like that. And But I've got, you know, mountains of unreleased ones of those in the computers. Like, to be honest, at this point, I um, I don't really watch telly. Like, sometimes I go downstairs and, like, my wife will be, like, watching, like, some crime drama or something. And I'll just come up here and, like, make some sort of slowly evolving loops just because it's really entertaining and and relaxing and lovely so i'll just kind of like pick up something and i've got a little system that's set up there and just you know play guitar into it or whatever 
yeah. and then you know just hit record on here and it'll just record like a, a stereo of it yeah and more than likely none of that will ever see the light of day but yeah anyway what was i talking about tape machines yeah so i use that one for drums and record That's through it sometimes the eight track you're talking the eight about the eight track atari yeah i'd love a, a bigger proper one inch eight track which you get to use in some nice studio sometimes but it's a bit ludicrous for up here then under here i've got uh, a J37, which is a really beautiful 50s or 60s kind of tape machine as used by the Beatles, etc., which is actually on loan, long-term loan from a friend, but it, um just full of valves and I often like print mixes or, you know, quite a lot of times, you know, if I'm doing stuff for, with people, I'll, you know, you kind of end up grouping a bunch of instruments together and then send the whole stem out to that and back, you know, or I've got a little Nagra there as well, which is the cute kind of sort of spy one. And yeah, you know, I use them for tape slaps for, you can do tape phase and flange and also just run stuff in and out. But that being said, <laughs> my point was that the tape thing, I think a lot of people get a bit over zealous about it. I do use it a lot, but I think the sonics of it is just sort of one bit of it. I think the main bit of it is just the way it makes you work and the way it makes you make decisions. I think if you're going to use tape and really want it to sound tapey or whatever, turn the computer off and just try and do it all on the tape machine because it's that process of being forced to make decisions early in the process and bouncing things and all of that stuff. That's where you get the real kind of juice out of it, I think. Yeah. Which which I have done on, on a few records and it's great, but it's also a massive pain in the ass. And like I say, with my own thing, I'm inherently lazy, so I just want to do it as quick as possible. <laughs> yeah. So so what, you're mirroring everything on the computer as well? Or or yeah, just some so, of it? Like with the you know, if I'm recording the drums through the tape, which I will often do, I'll split the signal on the patch bay and take a reference of one of the mics, because obviously there's a, a latency. Um so then I'll just line it back up afterwards, you know, so I'll have like the center mic or whatever on the kit and I'll just by eye, just line it back up right. to where it was. But, you know, it does something, you know, I kind of like the hiss and the hum and all that. I'm not bothered about that stuff, but you know, sometimes it does get annoying. You can, if you do it too much, you, you know, the noise floor really can go up and stuff gets all wadged together and, you know, it, it's horses for courses like anything, you know, certain things, it sounds great to put them onto tape, but a lot of things it's not even worth bothering. Yeah. I mean, one of the great things I think about the record and about the individual tracks is that they sound so live. They sound, even though they're you on your own, piecing it all together, it sounds like you're all kind of playing in the room. The, the multiple James Fords. I think that's the thing that I was most aware of because I, one of my big bugbears about the computer side of it now is that it's very easy to put things in time and in tune and edit things to within an inch of its life, you know? And I, I just think that that's inherently bad now. <laughs> I think it, you know, again, there's sometimes, you know, there's probably bits of auto tune on this, you know, where there's a phrase that I liked and I wanted to keep it or something, or with the bass clarinet where my intonation wasn't right. But I think if you're ironing out all of those mistakes, you basically, ironing out the humanness, you know, and we're a couple of years from AI being able to do all this shit for you anyway. I think the humanness 
is the bit that people like want out of records and it's what I want out of hearing someone else's record is to hear the person behind the record and how they got there and so to that end that's why everything is pretty much first takes and I tried to like not to edit it try to you know keep a keep a grip on myself you know and as uh, with production as well I've, I've been you know I've made records in the past where I have put things in time in and tune and looking back I kind of regret doing that you know I, I tried to do that have the you know the lightest touch I can in that respect on other people's records at this point in, in history because I think you know it's like photoshopping a photo or something it it just it makes it this kind of weird unreal amorphous nothing music if you're not careful yeah well this isn't nothing music <laughs> Good, this, thank you this sounds very human I think Good. we should hear a bit of the master to round off this song unless there's anything you want to particularly highlight more musically from I never wanted anything um it's just the vocals left and you know with the vocals what I do you know it's some double tracking and I kind of used a fair amount of like HC thousand kind of chorus and some of those slightly uh yeah I'm I'm a big fan of modulation effects in general so anything that's got a pitch wobble I'm into so choruses and vibratos are, or delays with vibratos are all over pretty much everything plug-in wise yeah or real effects wise you know um okay I'll play a bit more of it I washed my face and fed the birds And sometimes that's enough different elements there the uh, bass (laughs) clarinet excellent stuff so that's i never wanted anything the first track that we're looking at today from the hum by james ellis ford what are we going to listen to next we'll take a quick break but we're going to come back with squeaky wheel Yeah, yeah let's do that one okay squeaky wheel on the way You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. 
It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favor. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. The next one we're going to look at from James Ellis Ford's The Hum is Squeaky Wheel. James has it poised, ready to go. If you want to hit play, that would be great. taste of squeaky wheel by james ellis ford so james there's so much going on in terms of sounds across the whole of squeaky wheel and the times i've been listening to it i've been trying to identify some of those sounds and failing very badly um as a non-musician so expand tell us yeah, what's going on I can show you what's in there so, is there a squeaky wheel well there is again i think it started definitely in in the drone zone I think this might have been this again. It's literally turning it on, fucking around with it. And it's got this weird sort of sequence that loops around sort of arrhythmically. And I literally, this is as a, I thought it sounded like a squeaky, like a bike wheel going yeah. around. It's literally the as basic as that. So. Yeah. I seem to remember just trying to remember the artist's name. There's an album called Nomos that I really got into. I think it's Suicide's producer. And his name's escaping me. I just tried to look it up on my phone. But um, I was really into that. It's these kind of sort of like organ and these sort of drum machines through kind of short, what you'd call like a, a car plus strong sort of delay, like a tuned delay line. Um, so I think I was trying to do that. Basically, I probably made the drone for my own pleasure. And then I, th I would have probably just done the drums again. And the drums are like, just sort of like one mic drums, like not particularly well recorded. So one mic on the whole kit? Uh, yeah, like a kick and then maybe just one. They, they don't look, there's not much in there. But in because it sounds like there's some kind of effect on them. Well, that's it. Then, then, then this thing, it's this thing. I fed the drums. I was actually playing through that, and that's this thing down here, which is called the Space Station, right. Major, and it's basically 
It's like an 80s cluster delay machine. I love the sound of this. We used to use it loads in, in SMD. And it's loads of little delays that you can arrange in different ways. But when it feeds back, it gets this kind of metallic sort of cool tone. And I, I love this sort of sound. I use it all the time. Yeah. So I was just probably had had that in my headphones and I was just like playing the drums along. So for, I mean, for um, a lot of people now, you know, you were physically linking that into that piece of kit. Yeah. And a lot of people now would be using a plug-in or something to try and yeah, create. Yeah, you know, maybe just because I'm old, I just always, I've got a lot of respect for people who can make a brilliant record on, on a laptop on Ableton because I definitely can't. I just get bored or just feel like it sounds generic really quickly to mm-hmm. me. There's something about this stuff, and I know it's a privileged position to be in, but just running a thing through a thing gives you something you don't expect and you either do it slightly wrong or you can't get it quite how you want it with a laptop you get most of the time you get exactly what you want you know be that good or bad with something like this you know you'll turn this on and you'll aim for something and more often than not you'll kind of slightly miss the mark but it you'll uh probably get something better or something you didn't expect it's like it's giving you something back for free and sort of that's my whole ethos in production as well you know like a lot of times you know you'll hear the demos and you even know the people or whatever and you go in and you think you're gonna you know you have to have a somewhat of a plan or it's going to be like this we're gonna try and do that and that mix this type of sound with that type of sound but then when you're actually in the thick of it in the moment you try and do those things and always you know there's so many chaotic different factors pulling in so many different ways be it you know the studio or the time or the people or the you know some kind of elements of chance that it just turns out different to the point where you can't get too hung up on it's got to be like i thought it was going to be you know you just have to be able to keep moving forward and then be like oh something better than this is where i want to go but something better is going on over here let's just go like this and go over here you know yeah and I think that flexibility is at the heart of being a producer, really. Yeah, so same with this, you know, all of this stuff. I just literally, it's like plug some stuff in, see what happens. Oh, I like this. Let's head in this direction. Oh, this is sounding interesting as well. Let's go over here instead, you know. Yeah. Um, and just trusting that you, you know, if you work quickly and you do lots of stuff and then you almost can curate yourself afterwards, picking out the best bits or trying to leave off the shit bits or whatever but you just got to keep moving. And when you were playing Squeaky Wheel and playing those drums, so you can hear the effect on the drums as you're playing them? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I would have been going in through these kind of preamps here, and then I've got it all set. The studio, you know, is cramped, but it's great in the way that everything is so easily accessible. You know, I can instantly do a send from any of the tracks to any of these, you know, effects down here. I've got loads of, like, a weird, like, Russian kind of distortion sort of guitar thing got mutron i've got h3000 a quantet space station you know and then i've got grampian spring over there i've got another like master room spring in the corner that you know abby used to use or whatever and i've got all the amps and shit over there it, but literally it's just you know a patch on the patch bay and it'll end up over that side of the room you know so it's simple but also complicated enough to generate these like kind of chaotic events and just make new things which is you know to me often those those are the things that get you excited enough to 
follow an idea through to the end. You know what I mean? That's almost as much as you need. You know, I often think like you'll buy like a an effects pedal and it's like, do I really need that? But in the fucking around with it for half an hour, that's the bit where you'll actually probably get a song, you know, or um, that enthusiasm, however you generate that is the important thing. You know, I often see like people as they're getting older, like switching from writing on a guitar to writing on a piano or, yeah. you know, writing with modular stuff. You know what I mean? Just trying to make it difficult for yourself, basically. Yeah. So you've got the drones, you've got your drums, which you've put through your effects box yeah. to create this metallic sound. Yeah, so I've got those two things. So that was that's the sort of basis of the track probably there. And then I think there's bass clarinet again, but that's kind of pretty much just droning. I know they're following the chords, so I must have put that on after. I think probably the next thing I did was this sort of like, it's like a, a sort of arpeggio. I think I was, I don't know why I ended up in this sort of space, but you know, I'm a very fa a kind of fan of quite simple ditty like songs, not, you know, like obviously like the, those two or three early Eno solo records and those kind of things, things that are, yeah, just quite simple and pretty and not trying too hard or something, you know? Yeah. So I probably just, you know, they're pretty simple chords. I just probably played it on the guitar and then doubled it on the word that's behind me. But it's interesting, isn't it? When you isolate things like that, you know, that we could go in a folk direction with, yeah, with that. Yeah, totally, yeah. You know, and you're making me think that maybe Another Green World and Before and After Science are actually folk records. I mean, I hadn't really thought of them like that, but, yeah. but maybe they are. Maybe there's a simplicity that he taps yeah, into. But then again, like... I think the way he, he kind of, the context he puts them in, the simplicity of the song, but in this slightly kind of alien context is, you know, I've always loved that sort of meeting of two weird worlds, you know, I think straight kind of steel ice band you know, <laughs> yeah. is a bit much for me. Yeah. But it, um, I do love those kind of, you know, like going back to like the early Simeon sort of records, that first record that's very much these kind of simple ditty-ish folk songs but you know trying to be put in a slightly more kind of alien environment so yeah that's sort of what this is really you know bass is just probably playing along doing his job got some mutron on there of course i kind of put that on everything on this record and then there's some filler corder at the bottom uh, I've actually got a little Leslie in the corner, which it's like a Yamaha one that I think Pink Floyd used to use. I haven't got room for a proper Leslie, but right. it's like the spinning speaker yeah. thing. So, you know, just quite sort of simple and churchy. And, and then the voice, yeah. And then I was singing, this is actually the first thing I sang on. This is the first vocal I did. And yeah, I don't know, I was just... You know, it, it sort of was like a half an hour thing. Again, like the idea of the squeaky wheel and there's always that thing, you know, the the techno birds thing that, you know, when you're like kind of dancing to a, the beep of a washing machine because you're <laughs> still kind of pinging from the night before or whatever. I just kind of like the sort of how ludicrous that was and just being slightly the idea of being unaware of just in your own little bubble um, which I often think I am. I think I kind of like 
happily breeze through life like a puppy dog a lot of the time and you know <laughs> there's like you know buildings crashing around me or something but so it's that kind of feeling of like impending doom right that you're not really aware of just <laughs> in your own little world well in this world of your own this <laughs> studio 53 surrounded by all this exciting equipment so in terms of uh, approaching the vocal then i can spy a microphone behind you is that your go-to mic for vocals? Um, that's actually a, a B, it's called a Bees Knees. It's similar to like a Flea 47, but maybe slightly less, slightly smoother on the top end, in my opinion. It's sort of like a handmade version of a U47, which is the classic kind of studio, big condenser valve mic. Yeah, I probably used that. I've got quite a bassy voice, so... I end up having to scoop a load out. So as I've gone on, I've actually moved away from, I use that on other people quite a lot, but I've actually moved away quite a lot. I, there's a one behind you there that's called a Melodium, which is actually a, a French sort of ribbon mic. That was actually all the lead vocals on the last couple of Monkeys records were done on a mic like that. On this one here? Yeah. And it's got this sort of like proximity thing. So you, it's got like a bass roll off. So I tend to like put that up a couple and, and use that quite a lot. It's an amazing looking thing. It, look, it looks more like a ray gun it does, from yeah. the 1950s. Also. Yeah, I think they're pretty old. It's one of those things I, I don't want to, <laughs> you know, it's like if you talk about something, that you can still pick them up pretty cheap, basically. And, right. You know, I don't want to give the game away, but um, <laughs> yeah, they're great. So did you use that for your vocal then? So I ended, up, yeah, yeah. I ended up using that quite a lot. On this one, it was probably that one, actually. But right. But then I just had to... EQ all the low out of it. Right, because you were just starting out with this song Yeah, thinking. you know, I, it might have even been an SM7. I can't actually honestly remember. Mm. But yeah, it, you know, I, it was literally at the stage of like, I'm going to try this out. I'll probably delete it or never ever play it to anyone. You'll see what happens. Oh, and then there's, I suppose the other main element is this thing, which is... It's quite... This features quite a lot through the record, and it's... Um, it's actually this guitar, this is like a Gibson 125 thing here. And it's sort of, uh, again, it's another like wannabe Robert Fripp sort of thing. It's like triple tracks, single notes, but just like improvising with an Ebo basically and just like sort of moving around the chords, but trying to, you know, just find different little inversions and messing around like that. But that's on quite a few of the songs, you know, I, I love that kind of tone, sort of like you can't tell if it's a synth or a guitar or yeah. um, some kind of woodwind or something, you know, it's a nice, nice tone. So yeah. that kind of like does most of the kind of melodic chord heavy lifting. But, you know, it's, it's pretty simple. There's not a lot going on, really. Oh, I've got a piano downstairs. I ended up I've actually got tie lines down there, but sometimes I'll just take a laptop down and take that stereo pair of like um, C38s or whatever down there. And um, that, that's actually it's piano, but I think I put gaffer tape on the strings, so it's kind of like a bit more muted. Right. Which is a trick I've done quite a lot in the past. Yeah, and that's it. Down in the kitchen. Dancing to the squeaky 
put it all together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it sounds yeah, like it this. sounds like a thing. Yeah, and I didn't even really, you know, as you can, it's not like sonically perfect. But I, I didn't spend that long mixing it or anything. I just kind of like, it's there. That's it. You know, stick it out, sort of thing. I spend a lot more time on other people's records. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it sounds sounds fantastic. Um, we're going to look at another track now. I was thinking oh, yeah, yeah. the Yips okay. is completely yeah, yeah. different to the two tracks we've yeah, heard yeah. so far. Right. So it might be great to delve into that. So we'll take a quick break and we'll be back to look at the Yips. The next song we're going to look at from The Hum is The Yips. And I thought it'd be a great idea to listen to this because this is the the other side of your personality, James. <laughs> yeah, I I think, yeah, this one, I went on a trip to Palestine. My wife's dad is Palestinian. So I'm interested with that whole situation. So I went over there and like, you know, met some amazing musicians. And I've been fascinated by kind of, Arabic music, similar to Indian music, it's got its own set of rules and lots of kind of scales with half tones and all of these things that seem a little kind of strange to the Western ear, but are actually incredibly powerful sort of things. And then there's a whole sort of side of an era where, you know, there's a label called Habibi Funk, yeah. where they're, you know, people from that part of the world were trying to make James Brown records or whatever. And some of them sound incredible and weird and, you know, kind of like the Turkish psych sort of thing, that sort of world. But um, I think the, I've just seen that the session is called, or the first rough I did of it is called Habibi Rough. So I think I was just trying to get into that sort of zone with the, you know, slightly kind of uh, pointy sort of melodies. And obviously there's a fairly uh, kind of a typical can type drum beat on it, which yeah. is, you know, obviously it's a bit of a cliche doing it. I try not to do it anymore. I've done it so many fucking times, <laughs> but it's sort of my natural style is this kind of like uh, drumming. So yeah, Jackie Leibs is a all-time hero. So. Yeah, maybe we should hear the drums. Get just Because uh, yeah. it begins with the drums, really. Did the track begin with the drums? The track, yeah, the track yeah. would have begun with the drums, I think. I, again, I'm, my memory is pretty vague. Yeah, and then I, I would have made the bass line to the drums. It's got like some spring reverb on the bass, probably the grampium. And it's quite like picky. Obviously a big fan of all the Gansborgy type sounds or whatever I've got. Got his uh, one of the bases he used to use, like a, an old Burns. Oh, not he used to use, but who there's you know some people think it's Herbie Flowers, but then it wasn't. It was this other guy. But right anyway, blah blah blah. Um, and then baritone guitar on top of that. So this is when we first get the Middle Eastern. Yeah, I think so. I was just. Yeah, it's like a, a baritone guitar, so it's kind of down in a, a different tuning, but the strings are really bendy. Just trying to get some of those sort of slightly off normal notes, if you know what I mean. And then... <laughs> see, so what's see how, coming in there? See how chaotic it is? It's just like... There's something else in that group that isn't a woodwind, but... Funky guitar. Funk guitar. I think that wasn't wasn't going to be in there. 
So that's that's bass clarinet playing. Just, like this song's kind of not really a song. It's more just a bunch of riffs mm. over a drum beat, if you know what I mean. But yeah. And like some some geese honking uh, on, the, on the on the bass clarinet. So that's the bass clarinet again. Yeah. So it's like really, overblowing it. Yeah. And, yeah. Because um, every time I've been listening to this, I've been imagining about seven or eight James Fords <laughs> kind of all jamming together. Yeah. Know. Again, I did quite. You know, I'm a I'm a huge fan of like sort of electric period Miles, Live Evil, and that sort of era. And yeah, so in my head, I was like trying to approximate something. You know, something that just felt a little loose and jammy and. Again, I suppose maybe in a slightly contrary way, just trying to make it sound like a, a band in a room, even though it's just me on my own. I don't know why I would try and do that. It's a strange thing to do, but that's sort of what I was trying to do. You know, same with the other one, Caterpillar, it sounds like. And I think it's from keeping it loose, maybe. Yeah. But it really does, to me, sound like a, a band playing together, you know, because you have the two different, or three even, bass clarinets kind of going at different times. It could be a... yeah. Yeah, and then there's like vib- vibraphone. Right, so we can see the vibraphone, the vibraphone to my yeah, right. Yeah. Approximating other people, you know, some. Like Roy Ayers or something, but um, obviously nowhere near, near as good as any of the things I'm <laughs> referencing, but that was always in my head. And then it started going in this direction, so these are like the, again, the sort of. Turkish psych element is all the, the kind of like fuzzy, phasey guitar. There's kind of an old Selma 60s fuzz down there, which is really thin and waspy. And um, probably put it through the Mutron again. And made a little section of wasp guitars. I actually mixed it out of most of the mixes I do. I've got a little Studer desk here, so I'll actually not sum it in the computer. I'll do stems out into the mixing desk, and I've got a little bunch of outboard under here and over there, which I'll patch over. So the mixes are done in a it's kind of a hybrid version. It's like some kind of newer techniques or some more old school sort of techniques, parallel compression stuff on the desk. Right. So the mix won't sound exactly like you know the problem is doing it that way is that you can never quite get back to it which is also quite good sometimes because then you don't go back and drive yourself crazy yeah so i just probably did it and well oh, that's all right and do got it up on the desk did a quick mix one evening probably and then that was it so, you know like i have to stress i work pretty quickly so all of this stuff probably would have took a, a day or two you know to do yeah. a, a track like this really but and then deliberating over over if I should let anyone hear it afterwards <laughs> took you know a few years at this point. But um, I love that track though, and and I you know it, that was one of the songs I thought, is he going to do anything live with this? You know, wouldn't it be brilliant to see this performed live? And you are going to do some performances. I am apparently yes. <laughs> um, so the plan is at the minute um, I'm going to go full Karen Carpenter and sing and play drums, just because drums is the thing I've probably played the most in front of people and I'm fairly confident with that. So I'm going to do drums singing then there's like bass, guitar, keys and uh, sax and bass clarinet. So yeah, I'm trying to make it, allow it to be something so it's not just copying what 
what I did on my own and just, you know, everyone playing in it is very, you know, they're all great players and improvisers and stuff. So there's going to be a fair amount of just letting it off the leash and um, turn into something in its own right. We've, we had a few rehearsals and we got a few more and it was it was pretty fun. You know, I was like getting my head around it still, but I think it's going to be great. And uh, we've got, you know, some really great festival dates and stuff. Primavera and Glastonbury and Green Man and, you know, so it should be fun. Yeah, should fantastic. Fun. So, uh, I mean, we should emphasize that, you know, this could be the only year that you perform any of these songs. So if people are listening and thinking, <laughs> you know what, be. I'd love to hear these perform live too. <laughs> You're going to take your chance when you can. Yeah, I'd say that's probably fair. Mm. I, I'm, I'm sort of going to see how it goes. You know, like I said before, I'm not going to be doing any extensive world tours and, you know, but... I'm going to see how much I enjoy it, honestly. I, you know, have done lots of gigs in the past, obviously, and did enjoy them to greater and lesser extents. And then obviously a whole fucking period of my life playing techno or whatever. But yeah, I don't know, as I get older, and maybe it's even a post-pandemic thing, like I definitely feel, you know, quite happy in my little kind of comfort zone at the minute. Right. Yeah, well, fair enough. When you're in this sanctuary of Studio 53 with the beautiful <laughs> light at the top of the house, you cannot hear the world. I mean, maybe at the odd siren through the window. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I can understand why you might not think of venturing up yeah, elsewhere. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. And, you know, I've got a, a little boy and stuff. You know, it's nice to be around for that. You know, I've, I've spent yeah. a lot of my life kind of uh, traipsing around everywhere. You know, not to say I'd, I wouldn't love to go and play in Japan and stuff. But, you know, it's... Uh, um, yeah. But I guess with this album, you didn't really think about performing live, no? Honestly, no. Yeah, you know, it was even like maybe I could just do like a a drone set or a solo thing, and maybe I will do things like that. I don't, you know, the thing that I'm happy about at the minute is the way, you know, Warper so far have been, you know, a great label, and they're like a lot of my heroes have gone through that thing, and they're pretty happy for me to just kind of, you know, open up a channel and keep generating music. You know, I might make a weird like Harold Budd record or, you know, whatever. I don't think it necessarily has to be the same thing every time, you know, so I'm just going to keep making music for myself on my own terms and hopefully putting it out there. And, you know, it's the same when I'm in the studio with, you know, bigger bands or whatever. Often it's like, you know, which one's the singer? What's, you know, what's this going to do? What's that going to do? And I've been through it all so many times now is that it's fucking unpredictable, you know, things that you think a surefire things don't work and things you didn't expect become these things that have their own life you know and i think the only way you can judge it is i know it sounds trite but is honestly is if it excites you and it gives you goosebumps in that moment of creation that's about the only thing you can be certain of you know yeah and uh, and if it does that to you it could well do it to other people exactly yeah. you know and if it doesn't do to you and you're putting it out there it's sure as hell not going to do it to other people <laughs> do you know what i mean it's like yeah you have to do it from that place, otherwise there's there is nothing. You know. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, one more question about this project. So, you haven't used any plugins or anything like that. No, or... I've. You know, I'm I'm not a total um, like analog snob. I've definitely got plugins on there. I use you know EQ like the best of them. Fabfilter Pro Q. I use a lot. It's just a great workhorse. It's got like weird dynamic modes and stuff, so you can use it like a de or whatever if you want to, you know. And it's also got a little graphic on it so you can see a weird frequency and, like, poke it out. So instead of having to sweep it on the board like you used to, you know, it's kind of like cheating. But, yeah, the, with the dynamic thing I was talking about is that, like, 
say that was a vocal and you can you can see it like that'd be an s hitting in that sort of this sort of zone you can do a thing where you like make dynamic and it just like whenever a certain frequency hits you can just pull it out so like you can get pretty surgical with that kind of stuff and if there's a certain frequency that keeps being really annoying in like an acoustic guitar or something like that you can find it pretty easily and then like dynamically pull it out as it goes through so it's you know there's the plugins and the eqs and stuff at the minute there's so many amazing tools it's like it's definitely getting easier and easier you know to kind of get things together quickly but you know honestly the stuff that i use plugin wise i try and use mainly outboard stuff i sort of find distortion and reverbs i still prefer like doing it outside compression really but i'll use fabfilter pro q a lot i'll use uh the uad la2 and 1176 a lot just for holding things in place um i use the sound toys primal tap quite a lot i think it sounds pretty good for an in in the box delay and also they're just ones that i almost just go for the ones that i'm most familiar with sometimes because they're just the quickest i just yeah. want to get to a, a point as quick as i can you know, I'll use the devil lock sometimes when I can't be asked to plug the real one in. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's horses, of course. There's some like really cool new like esoteric sort of plugins. There's a company called K Devices and stuff, which do some interesting sort of you know like granulary sort of stuff. But then even with that, I would tend to use the modular for processing. I've got you know like clouds up there and a few things, mutable instrument stuff that I use for a lot of the kind of more esoteric sort of you know, weird modern, what are called modern effects. <laughs> but yeah, you know, the the outboard effects that I use probably on every single record, I use the Mutron all the time, the Biphase and the and the Ottawa. I love spring reverbs. I love an, a good play. The Space Station and the H3000 get used, you know, certain contexts, they're, they're really cool. Synth-wise, up to 2600 gets the most use of any synth I've ever had that, like it's a brilliant noise machine you can make drums out of it it's brilliant bass you know it was thriller bass and all of that you know what i mean it's right. just and i'm just know my way around it so quickly i can get to like you know someone's like i want a noise it's a bit like i can like nine times out of ten i can get there like yeah. pretty quickly with that uh you know 808 for electronic stuff i use all the time it's kind of human and alive and but really i just you know I just try and find whatever's around me and kind of, you know, I'm in the, I'm in a position where there's lots of nice studios and there's always interesting things and stuff to try out. So yeah, just try and use whatever's around and roll with the punches. Yeah. Fantastic. So before we um, let you go, James and get out of your hair. Um, we're going to ask you another couple of questions that we ask everybody on the show, okay. but we'll have a quick blast of the master of the yips and I'll deliver those questions to you. and then calms down 
great climax though and I'm thinking maybe robes will you be wearing robes, robes. for these performances <laughs> no, I, was, I think I think the rest of the band are going to be all in black and I'm just going to be like a huge lobster <laughs> costume with like lots of arms wow amazing <laughs> I can't wait to see it um, before we go we ask everybody these two questions one is about a favourite piece of kit is there something you can't work without I suppose the one that I would I spend maybe just because it's here but the thing that I use all the time is the ARP 2600 you know it is amazing in terms of I take it to lots of sessions you can get an incredible bass and lead sounds out of it but it goes batshit crazy pretty quickly so you can get cool sort of you know drums out of it you know we're with the Daniel Miller and on the new Depeche thing recently and he was saying like he used that for the majority of the drum sounds on a lot of those early kind of mute records or whatever so you know it, it's very versatile but it's got a brilliant spring in it it's got a, a preamp so often you can just you know I'll run something into it drums or whatever and you can it distorts really well it's got a ring modulator it's kind of you know the spring reverb's great it's got little speakers on it you can mic it up you can just use it in a million different ways i was listening to what was it this morning oh i my my wife put on um flash gordon soundtrack because my little boy really likes it and in the middle of that there's some like space noises like ray gun noises i was like 90 percent sure that that's an l2600 <laughs> i could recognize it because it does yeah. like cross modulation between the oscillators and it in a very particular way i kind of really recognized it Amazing. And looking at it, I mean, it's, it seems reasonably portable. You could bring it to It's pretty sessions. portable. Yeah. It's just, you know, now they're pretty valuable. Right. Um, but then actually, honestly, you know, a lot of companies are making very close, you know, versions of them. I think almost the problem sometimes is they're a little too good. That sounds really old and cranky still. The new ones sound brilliant, but they're definitely just a, a bit better, which I'm not sure I want better. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, fair enough. Um, the other question we ask everybody is about a piece of advice, whether you've received any advice or whether you, through your experience, have have thought about some advice that you'd want to pass on. And, and you're an interesting case, James, because um, you know, you're a producer and an artist. So it's almost as if, would the advice be different with a producer hat on or would it be different with an artist hat on? Would you have two pieces of advice with the different hats on? One that always sticks in my head is make sure your mistakes are your own mistakes because, and that sort of relates to, you know, what we were saying a minute ago about kind of getting the goosebumps and that being the only kind of barometer of if something is good or not, because it's, I see a lot of people in the position where, you know, they're, you know, being forced to either put out some music they, or not forced, but, persuaded to put out some music they're not particularly 100% happy with or you know do social media in a way that they're not happy with or you know all of these things like I think if you with open eyes go into these situations and do something and it fucks up it's like oh I fucked it up but you know I'll learn from that and move on to the next thing it's a horrible feeling if you've been cajoled into to doing that on someone else's behalf you know because yeah. those, you can't own those mistakes then, you know. Yeah, so own your mistakes. Or... I think so, yeah, or ju just make sure if you fuck up, it's it's your fault. You know, you, you were the one who made the decision to, to fuck it up. Yeah, fantastic. It's been so good 
to come here. Thank you so much for allowing us to come into Studio 53. I know this is your special zone. Yeah, it's a little odd, but like I said earlier, you know, I, by putting out a thing, I suppose I've opened myself up to these kind of things, but this has been very enjoyable. Thank Good. You. Thank you very much. Glad to hear that. So we'll leave with one more song, another selection from The Hum, and it is Pillow Village, I think, because we were going to talk about Pillow Village. Yeah, so Pillow Village is like the, it's the first track on the record, and it was actually the first track that I made for the record that I thought, oh, maybe I could make my own record. Because I think I'd started it maybe for some kind of soundtrack thing that hadn't happened, and I, I thought, oh, this is a pretty melody. And then I sort of started working it up, and it turned into this thing that I was like, I was like, oh, I'm pretty happy with this. You know, that's a novel experience. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think it sort of, it sums up the kind of mood and the the feeling I was sort of aiming for when I started. It was like my original intention for the record, if you know what I mean. I kind of got sidetracked and went off in a few different directions, but that was where I was aiming, if you know what I mean, at the beginning. So, yeah. Excellent. Well, this is it. This is Pillow Village then. James, thank you very much. Thank you. And this is the last selection from The Hum. Thank you for listening. And in particular, thanks to all of you who have signed up to support us on Patreon. I'm just one part of the team that brings you Take Notes, and it relies on your support. Access to Patreon includes the full-length videos of new episodes where possible, ad-free episodes, and detailed gear lists, among many other things. If you'd like to join, head to the link on our socials or website. For pictures, highlight clips, and behind-the-scenes content, head to our Instagram or YouTube channel. And on Discord, you can join the growing Take Notes community. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.